This show is produced by the Hartman Media Company. For more information and links to all our great podcasts, visit HartmanMedia.com. Welcome to the Holistic Survival Show with Jason Hartman. The economic storm brewing around the world is set to spill into all aspects of our lives. Are you prepared? Where are you going to turn for the critical life skills necessary to survive and prosper? The Holistic Survival Show is your family's insurance for a better life. Jason will teach you to think independently, to understand threats, and how to create the ultimate action plan. Sudden change or worst case scenario, you'll be ready. Welcome to Holistic Survival, your key resource for protecting the people, places, and profits you care about in uncertain times. Ladies and gentlemen, your host, Jason Hartman. Hey, it's my pleasure to welcome Mike Norman to the show. You may know his name. He's been in the media quite a bit. He's been on Fox for about 10 years, I believe. He is a currency trader and an economist who is a proponent of MMT, that is Modern Monetary Theory. Mike, welcome. How are you? I'm great, Jason. Thank you for having me on your show. It's it's our pleasure. Give our listeners a sense of geography. Where are you located? Uh, New York? Yes, right in New York City in Manhattan. In the Big Apple. Good stuff. In the Big well, Apple. Well, tell us about MMT. MMT. What is MMT? MMT stands for Modern Monetary Theory, and uh, I wouldn't even uh, really classify it as a theory. It is a school of economic thought and really a description of uh, how our modern financial system and monetary system operates. And not just it's not just applicable to the United States monetary system, but most of the industrialized world and Uh, What it says or what it explains is that the governments, the states, the the authorities, which are the governments, are the creators of money. Uh, The money is not uh, linked to anything. There's no gold standard. There's no uh, fixed exchange regime to some other currency. So basically, governments are the issuers of money. And the non-government, which is us, the the, the public, uh, we are the takers of that money. And the government is not constrained in any way in its capacity uh, to issue that money. I mean, we might put political constraints on ourselves, like things like the debt ceiling. And if you want to talk about that at some point, I will. But the government has the power to issue money. And the question is then, what gives the money? And we call it fiat money, right? Money by decree. Congress just decides, hey, we'll raise the the debt ceiling, or we'll you know we'll we'll uh, ink we'll give 700 billion to the military, and boom, there it is. What gives the money value in a system like that? That would be the obvious question because people would think, well, if you're just you know printing money, which is not really an accurate term, but if you want to use that that uh, term, printing money, then the money basically would have no value. What imparts value to the money? And MMT explains that when governments levy taxes in any form, it is only uh, it only accepts their currency, their money for the settlement of tax liabilities. I mean, you could read, you could look at a dollar bill. It says right on there, uh, you know, for for the um, the payment of debts, all, all debts, uh, public and private. It's, it's really the public, the word public in that statement that's important because everybody knows. You know, if you have a debt uh, to the government, let's say you owe taxes, you have to pay that. If you don't pay that, bad things can happen to you. So that creates a demand for the money. 
Also things like, um, you know, uh, fines and fees and licenses, that also creates demand for the money. But basically taxation is what imparts demand for the money. But let's understand that because the government is the issuer, it does not need to collect taxes to spend. But there has to be taxes in some form in order to create demand for that money. Well, that, that's oh, oh, that oh, that you said it. That's a very interesting thing that you said. The tax system is required to create demand for the money. Can you? That's a fascinating statement. Can you smoke that out a little bit more for us? Yeah. So, uh, for example, um, you know, when the government levies taxes, uh, and you know, we have a tax liability that we need to pay. We can only satisfy that tax liability in the government's own currency, in dollars, right? If you went down to the IRS with, you know, a sack of gold, or if you went down to the IRS with, with a bunch of euro or a bunch of yen, the IRS would tell you, oh, oh or you went to the Treasury, let's say, the Treasury would tell you, uh, that's really nice, uh, you know, Jason, but why don't, you go, why don't you go cash that gold in for dollars and give us the dollars because that's all we accept. Yeah, yeah. Go, so, go sell the gold to Peter Schiff and give us the dollars. Yeah, yeah. exactly. <laughs> so even if so, what happens is then the the demand, and even if you know there may be some in the society who don't have tax liabilities, but the fact that most of us do in one form or another, it creates a, a demand for the money. The money is ubiquitous. It is used for uh, transaction. Right. Uh, and everybody holds a certain amount of it. And that is, you know, basically how the system functions. Um, so, yeah, that that's the way the taxation imparts the value into the money. Yeah, that, that's fascinating. So so as a thought experiment, then, Mike, like if if we had if we had the the system we have now where the government, you know, issues the currency and there's, you know, there's a central bank and they do their thing together that they do. And we didn't have an IRS. Would it not work? I mean, it seems like it would still work. It, w it would still work to a degree. But um, without without the government, let's say, draining away some of that currency in the form of taxation or in some other form. Um, then, then you'd have the, the the value of the currency would lessen. Okay, so when tax taxes are levied, you know it creates that demand, and that de demand keeps the value of the currency relatively stable. Now, of course, you know things could fluctuate, uh, but it's within the control of the policymakers of the government as to really the value of that money. I mean, higher taxation generally causes the dollar to appreciate, all right, because it becomes harder to get. Um, less taxation basically allows the currency to circulate more freely in the economy. You uh, ordinarily have usually a stronger economy under that condition. People have more money to consume and invest. And so it can be regulated in that manner. I know a lot, a lot of people who are critical of this type of a system, let's say people who would like to go back on a gold standard or some sort of a fixed exchange rate. The trade-off in a system like that is under a gold standard, your money is finite. There is a finite quantity of money. In, in effect, how does a gold standard work? It limits the quantity of money. You need to have physical gold to back your money. So under a system like this, which we have had 
you know, various times throughout history and, and basically which uh, ha has never really held up over long periods of time because of the finite nature. Um, you get people who are uh, powerful, connected, influential, who tend to be able to accumulate larger amounts uh, of the money. So you, when you have a finite, think of a pizza, you only have a, a certain number of slices in there. You know, maybe the bigger people get more and the smaller people get less. Under a system of, of um, fiat money, the government has the ability to make the national investments and spend in the public purpose to the degree that it wants. I mean, if you think about some of the, um, the great things of our country, take the interstate highway system that was created under President Eisenhower. That was financed through deficit spending. So, and that created real wealth. I mean, the roads and the highways of the nation, everything that you have, everything that anyone has, came to them in one form or another over a highway or a road. So, you know, that's real wealth. That's real capital that brings us the goods and services that we need to consume and use in our everyday lives, which define our level, our standard of living. Very important to make those investments as a nation. When you have a, when you have a fixed monetary system, it becomes a little bit harder. You know, under the old system of the gold uh, standard, the government needed gold to back the issuance of money. Um, and if it did not have that gold, what we saw during the period of the 19th century was with such regularity, rolling depressions and recessions almost um, like clockwork every 10 years, you know, just because there, there wasn't enough money, there wasn't enough money in circulation, there wasn't enough liquidity uh, to keep the economy sustained, to keep people employed, and you had these crashes and the, these sort of boom and bust cycles uh, with, with unbelievable regularity during the 19th century when we were on the gold standard. So are the cycles less severe or less regular now than they were back then? I mean, were they because because back then you had this fixed system, this kind of closed system, if you will, and we don't have that anymore. So was it was it worse? I mean, people would complain that there are cycles now and it's bad, but was it worse then? It was it was much worse then. It was much worse then. I think between um, you know the early 1800s till about 1913, with the establishment uh, uh, of the Fed, you know we probably went through um, a dozen or more major uh, depressions. Really, I mean they, we can't even really call them uh, recessions; they were major depressions. What's interesting too is that if you look at, um, I think it was. Uh, might have been uh, 1907, the panic of 1907, uh, and at that time it was the pre-Federal Reserve, uh, and we'll get into talking about the Fed in a second, but that was the pre-Federal Reserve. When we had that panic, um, some of the big financiers of the time, like J.P. Morgan and, and some of the bigger banks here in New York, they got together in concert to kind of support the economy, to, to pump liquidity into the economy. So in effect, even when we did not have the Fed, we saw the big actors in the financial system come together and behave almost like a central bank. It was like a natural instinct uh, to do that. To be a lender of last resort, right? Yes. Yeah. Yes. Yeah. Very interesting. So this seems like a, a good argument for big government and, you know, more government intervention in the economy. 
and it, maybe it's not, so so please correct me if I'm wrong there. But if it is, then it seems like, you know, why isn't Bernie Sanders out there talking about MMT? You know, it seems like it, it would support his position more than it would support uh, like a Reagan position, for example. Well, Bernie Sanders, you know, um, he, he was quite um, close to the MMT line. As a matter of fact, his his chief economist, who I know, this this lady by the name of Stephanie Kelton, she's a professor at uh, University of Missouri at Kansas City, uh, uh, and that's like a hotbed of MMT teaching and thought. I mean, she was his chief economist. Uh, you know, Bernie went only so far with the MMT uh, proposals and ideas. But yeah, he, he went off course. I mean, he, he did talk about, he did say things, unfortunately, I, I thought, which, um, you know, were, were not correct, but things about, you know, he wanted to do like, let's say free education, but if we give it too much, it's gonna bankrupt the country. I wanted Medicare for all. He's still proposing Medicare for all, which I think is a fantastic idea. And I think that's what most people in America want. But, you know, you don't say things like it's going to bankrupt the country because that's just patently false. Um, you cannot. I mean, when you talk about a currency issuing nation that spends in its own money and where all of its obligations. And by the way, what is the obligation when we talk about debt, the United States debt? What is that? Right. People don't really have an understanding of, of, of what that is. The only liability, the only obligation, the only promise that the government makes to you, to anyone, is that it will accept its own currency for the payment and settlement of tax liabilities. And that is a promise that it can always keep. All right, that's not like a promise of, well, we will pay you back in gold, because if that, under those conditions, there could arise a situation where the government was uh, insolvent or had an inability to pay you back in gold. But the only true promise, the only true debt that the government makes to anybody is that it will accept its own currency as the payment for the payment of taxes, for the settlement of tax liabilities. And that's a promise that it can always keep. You know, when we talk about the national debt, it is not a debt in the sense that most people think of debt. Like, you know, if you have a debt uh, to the bank or whatever, to a creditor, um, you are not an issuer of currency. You need to get that money or whatever it is to satisfy that debt. All right. You have to physically have that to satisfy the debt. The, the 20 trillion that we hear all the time that's thrown around, that is the sum total of all the spending of the United States government since 1789, since our creation, minus all the money that was taken away in taxes. So like whatever the government spent over that, whatever, uh, you know, 200 and uh, what, 28 years or something like that, minus what was taken away, 20 trillion is held by the citizens and people around the world. So it, that is not what we owe that is what we own, okay? That's money we hold on to right now, which has not been turned back in for the payment of taxes, and it might never be turned back in for the payment of taxes. That is part of our wealth. That is not a debt. And that wealth is held in the form of a government security, simply because a government security, what is a government security? What is a treasury? A treasury is a US dollar that pays some interest. They're interchangeable, all right? so. We, it's like it's like if you have a checking account at the bank 
and you want to earn some interest and you switch it into your savings account to earn some interest. The Treasury is like a savings account of the U.S. government denominated in its own money. So the debt, that's why all these people, these doomsday predictors, people like Schiff, who you mentioned, who've been talking for so many years, years and, and years and years about how and the wrong debt, and wrong. <laughs> and, and it's why it's never happened, yeah. okay? The reason why it's never happened is because it is not a debt in the sense that everyone thinks it's a debt where the government has to go get that resource to pay it back. It is the monopoly issuer of that resource, and it could never be insolvent in, in its own currency. So basically, it's $20 trillion that people hold here and around the world that is part of their net wealth, that is part of their financial wealth. Right. So does this only work for the U.S. having a reserve currency, or does it work for every, can every country do this simultaneously? Because it seems like the U.S. is obviously in a very enviable position. Uh, you know, when you talk about the treasuries, I mean, other countries have our treasuries, so China has her treasuries, and and you seem to be saying, well, we, can, we never need to default in our own currency because all the treasury is is that instrument that says we'll you know turn it into dollars and or it is dollars really to pay interest i i mean how does it work on a global scale and, and you know this is this is another thing that we hear all the time that oh you know uh china's financing us and this and that or japan they hold all our debt um you got to understand like you know what comes first the chicken or the egg you could only buy a treasury with dollars Okay, the dollars have to exist first before anyone can buy a treasury. Try to understand this concept. You know, it's not that hard to understand, but it's like filling up a swimming pool. If you want to drain a swimming pool, you got to fill it up first, right? So, if you want to sell treasuries, if the government wants to sell treasuries, the dollars have to exist first to be able to buy them. So the fact of the matter is, China it is, is not financing the U.S. by buying treasuries. China, we are literally financing China by buying their goods, which causes them to earn dollars, and then they take those dollars and just shift them over into an account called a treasury. So the dollars have to exist first. How do the dollars exist? The government spends the dollars into existence through its spending activity, okay? When the, when the government spends, it literally creates the dollars in the system, and those are the dollars that are used to buy treasuries. So it's not like, hey, what if nobody bought our treasuries? That could never happen because the dollars exist before the treasuries can ever be created and sold. So... Somebody's going to buy the treasury because it pays an interest rate, right? There's always an entire the treasury. It's better for them to own the treasuries than the dollars because they're going to get yeah they, greater interest they on the treasuries than they more. will on the dollars. They get a little bit more, exactly. Yeah, right. So, you know, normally okay. people okay. So would, the dollars existed first. You understand that, though, right? This is very important because it this is a, this is actually a simple concept, but it it, it go most people don't you know go they don't they don't get it or they don't think about it first. And the same thing, let's say this too, the same thing with taxation, like people say, well, it's my tax dollars that are paying for everything, okay? Like Social Security, it's my tax dollars. It's not, because look, you cannot, and let's go back to the very original concept, right? You cannot even pay your taxes until you have the dollars 
to pay them, right? And where do the dollars come from? The government has to spend the dollars into the economy first, has to create the dollars for you to even have the dollar to pay your taxes. Yeah. Yeah, it's draining the. If you got to fill the pool before you drain it. I get it. That's it's a. You, you, this is a very interesting theory, Mike. I got to tell you, I, or maybe not theory, as you say, but actual description. description. Yeah, fair. That uh, description's a better word. But it just makes me think. Well, why don't we just raise taxes more, and why don't we just spend more money into the economy, and everything will be even better? No, no. It's getting into ideology. It's getting into belief. It's getting into politics. You know, let's face it, uh, Jason, and, and I'm sure you would agree with me on this. Most people, they're going to listen to me talking to you and they're going to say, this guy, Mike Norman, is crazy. He doesn't know what we're talking about. I write out a check to the IRS every year and I pay my taxes and that's what is the government is using to spend. This Mike Norman is an idiot. He's crazy. So you see what I'm saying? It's a belief system. This, this belief system um, goes back to the days when we were on a gold standard. On a go, under a gold standard or a fixed exchange regime where like we, our money is fixed to some other currency uh, at some rate of exchange and we need to have that currency all the time to sort of backing our own money. Under those conditions, which have existed for a long time over history, all of the, the things that we fear like going bankrupt and insolvency and not having enough money, all those things could happen, okay? But we went off of that, I mean, in 1971, we broke up. We really got off of that in 1933. FDR took us off the gold standard domestically. But the mentality is still there. You know, I'll tell you about a very interesting uh, exchange that happened, uh, I think it was back in 2005, when Ron Paul, congressman, the father of Rand Paul, he was still in Congress, uh, he was in a hearing with Alan Greenspan, who was the chairman of the Federal Reserve at the time. And Ron Paul, you know, he's a big gold bug, this Ron Paul. He's always like, we got to go back on the gold standard. We got to go back on the gold. So he asked uh, Greenspan, don't you think we ought to go back on the gold standard? And here's what Greenspan said. He said, no, I don't think so, because anyway, we still behave as if we are. You get that? We still act, even though we have unlimited capacity to make the investments, the national investments, we rebuild our infrastructure, right? Do health care, um, uh, education, uh, basic science and research, all the things that, that make a great country and a high standard of living, we have the capacity to do that. And by the, by the way, none of that is inflationary because when you're creating new capital, when you're creating real things, stuff, the, a new supply, a greater supply of things, you know, then the prices stay level. I mean, they don't go up, right? If you create more output, even if you even if it takes more money, if more output is created at the same time, right? The supply grows, the price is not going to go up. Everybody understands supply and demand. If there's more supply of whatever bananas in the supermarket, what happens? The price goes down. It doesn't go up, right? So we have that capacity, but you ask the question, well, why don't we just do it? We don't just do it because our deeply held beliefs, most people, and I'm sure if you go around and you ask people, and, and people are going to comment on this interview, they're going to write in, they're going to call in, whatever, 
And they're going to say this guy, Mike's Norman, Mike Norman's crazy. But they're going to say that because they're still stuck sort of in that gold standard mentality when they think, you know, we're digging our money up out of the ground. And, hey, if we're not digging our money up out of the ground, then we're going to end up being Weimar, Germany or Zimbabwe. And, and both of those analogies are completely inapplicable to our situation. I mean, you're talking about very rare, rare you want to know something? Look at Japan. You asked me before, you know, do you have to be to get Yeah, Japan's got mountains of debt, right? And it's yeah. But it's all right, yen, right? Japan has literally printed quadrillions of yen. We're not even trillions. Quadri you can't even imagine the number. And they're dying to get a little bit of inflation. They're like, we want some inflation. Why can't we get <laughs> because they're not the, the, the money's just be just piling up in the banking system. It's not really being spent into use, okay? Same thing like, remember what happened here in the financial crash in 2007 to 2009, and the Fed started to engage in all these extraordinary monetary operations. Oh, you right. know, they started- Operation and, Twist and, and yeah, QE. Yeah. And, and QE and all these people like Schiff again and everybody else. And even, let me tell you, even some very, very well-known uh, uh, you know, economists, they were predicting inflation and even hyperinflation. And at the time I said, it's never going to happen. It's never going to happen because what the Fed was doing really was a gigantic asset swap, right? They were, they were taking these high yielding assets, treasuries out of the economy. They were buying it for themselves. So they were stripping away that income and they were replacing it with reserves in the banking system, which earned nothing. And you could actually see in that period of time that uh, income, interest income, plunged way down. And it was not an insignificant amount. It was like $200 billion was sucked out of the economy, taken away. That's like a gigantic tax. So when people thought, oh, there's going to be hyperinflation, they didn't understand that what the Fed was actually doing was like a gigantic tax on the economy. And that's why we never, even with all that trillions that they printed, whatever you want to say, we never even got economic growth above 3% annually. We kind of crawled along the whole time, you know, so, because that's exactly what happened. And now when they're going to do the reverse and everybody's freaking out because, oh my God, they're going to they're gonna sell their mountain of treasury. No, they're not. They're going to replace those high yielding assets back into the economy and take away the low paying reserves. So this is actually gonna be a little bit more inflationary or way more inflationary, I should say, than their activities and their operations from 2007 until what, 2015. Yeah, very, very interesting. You know, Mike, just to kind of wrap things up, first of all, you have a YouTube channel. Where can people find that? Yeah, just YouTube slash Michael Norman. Okay, Michael Norman. It's, it would seem like your view of the future. I just got to ask you what you think is like coming next, you know. Your view of the future sounds pretty optimistic, I'm thinking, right? Uh, I mean, you believe in the system we have, and it seems to be serving us well, it sounds like, right? Well, monetarily, I would love to see policy move uh, or embrace MMT, uh, where we're not there. And I, I think, you know, in spite of all of our efforts in the MMT community over the years, you know, we still have a long way to go to get it into higher policy circles. So, uh, from, from an economic or a monetary standpoint, you know, we're, we're moving slowly in the right direction, but it, it's agonizingly slow. 
from a geopolitical standpoint, and you know, we could have a whole other show on this, but uh, I'm I'm very concerned because uh, you know the wars, uh, the the Russia phobia, which which I think is just insanity and dangerous. Um, the deep state situation that we have going on here. I mean, that, that's that's a whole separate worry. But from from an economic point of view, um, I'm frustrated. Let me be honest. I'm frustrated because these are not hard concepts to grasp. And and I thought after the crash, you know, we'd start to see more of this infiltrate into the policy level. Uh, but it's been a it's been a tough slog, you know, and uh, I do everything every day to try to get these concepts and these ideas out there, and I'm not going to stop, and I appreciate, you know, you having me on the show to talk about it. Yeah, fa- fascinating talk. I mean, uh, you know, f- few of my guests have anything really kind of new to say about this stuff. It, it's kind of like we're rehashing the same thing over and over, and, uh, you know, it, they all have a different take on it and so forth. I know you're not a, you're definitely not a gold bug, neither am I. You're probably not a cryptocurrency guy, neither am I. But stop me when I'm wrong about any of these. What, what do you think of like Harry Dent, for example? You know, he would have said the Japan problem's a demographic problem, you know, for example. Yeah, his thing his big thing is demographics right yeah right you know yeah. I, I don't what to me the, the the japan problem in a nutshell is that they have sort of embraced this junk western economics uh where they have convinced themselves that you know they're out of money you know it's a fascinating thing to watch i mean here is a a, a monopolist sovereign currency issuing nation which has all the power and capacity and ability in the world to lift itself up it's been what 25 years in this kind of perpetual recession and all they want to do is try to create inflation you know you want growth okay there's a difference between inflation and growth that's another thing like these economists they're like they're like begging or, or, or you know so desirous of inflation you want growth Okay, you don't just want prices to go up because they're down now. You want prices to stay down, but you want growth. There's a difference. And Japan has the ability to do that. But, you know, if you listen to their leadership, if you listen to their leaders, both in the in the central bank and also, you know, all their prime ministers, Shinzo Abe now, it's like, okay, we're going to spend a little bit more money but we're gonna raise taxes at the same time to pay for it. Like, they don't understand, like, that's zero, okay? If, I, if I'm the government and if I spend $10, but at the same time I'm taking $10 away from you in taxes, what is the net increase? It's zero, zero. So this, this whole thing, and by the way, you asked me, what, you know, am I sanguine about the outlook? Am I optimistic? You know, I happen to think in this country, we're going to make the fatal mistake, and I see it coming, we're going to make the fatal mistake of passing a balanced budget amendment. And basically a balanced budget amendment will, will put us, that'll make us like Europe with the euro, yeah. where yeah. It, it will, it will um, preclude, yeah, yeah. Pre- preclude our capacity to spend, and it's going to make it really tough for a lot of people. Ironically, 
probably a lot of people who think it's a good thing. It's so against their interests. Right, right. You know, I, I would I would argue that those who are, and I used to be when I didn't know much, in favor of a balanced budget amendment. And like conceptually, you know, I would say, well, I think the government's spending too much, you know, which you, you addressed that already, right? But I, but I would say that, right? I'd, irresponsible government spending, I would be one of those people. But if try a balanced budget amendment in your own life, you know, and, and see if you can buy a house without going into some debt and, exactly. and you know taking some risk. That's what helps you grow. Leverage exactly. is a great tool. Of course, it needs to be respected, not abused. Uh, but it's a phenomenal tool. I mean, you can do, you know, you can do things 10 times faster if you get 90 percent leverage. Right. right. So, you know, it's right. not, not all bad. That's growth. Yeah. And, and none of us, by the way, it, it, not only is it not all bad, it's good, as you pointed out. In addition, none of us, when we go into debt, we don't issue our own money. So we don't have that that additional benefit of the, the monopoly issuer, the, the issuer of the, the money, the government. So they're in an even better position. And by the way, it's necessary just because if they're again, if they're going to levy taxes on us, they have to create the dollars for us to be able to pay the taxes. If not, then you have massive unemployment. You have a finite amount of money. But then you have people who, you know, have tax liabilities. What happens? You get kind of this this cannibalistic economy. I mean, it's almost you can almost see it happening right now. Like with the you know, it leads to this kind of uh, very acute income inequality that we're seeing now. It leads to malinvestment. Like, what are we doing now? Like, I can't even drive my car here in New York. The roads are terrible. But yet, you know, there there's um, Wall Street's going crazy. It's all paper transaction. We need the real stuff because that's the stuff we live on, okay? The stuff we consume, the stuff we use every day, that, that is the definition of our standard of living. I mean, you know, trading stocks, you know, it's nice to have a stock market, but to um, raise that up as the focal point of the economy when a lot of the rest of the, the economy needs attention, needs investment, you know, we, we're, we're basically reducing our standard of living vis-a-vis -vis the rest of the world, at least vis-a-vis -vis other countries that are making those investments. Interesting discussion. Very interesting. Well, I can't wait to check out your YouTube channel and learn more about MMT. Mike Norman, thank you so much for joining us today. Really appreciate, you know, some some truly new ideas here. I, I mean, at least new for my show, because the people that come on are either on the side of, I hate the Fed, uh, <laughs> be a gold bug <laughs> type, type philosophy, and, and that one never seems to really work right, or the other side of that equation, which is, you know, spend, 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 and then you, you have an interesting approach. I, I really like this MMT stuff. I want to learn more about it. So thank you. All right, Jason, uh, thanks so much for having me on. It was a pleasure. I really appreciated talking to you. Yep. Pleasure was all mine. Thanks, Thank you so much for listening. Please be sure to subscribe so that you don't miss any episodes. Be sure to check out the show's specific website and our general website, HartmanMedia.com, for appropriate disclaimers and terms of service. Remember that guest opinions are their own. And if you require specific legal or tax advice or advice in any other specialized area, please consult an appropriate professional. And we also very much appreciate you reviewing the show. Please 
please go to iTunes or Stitcher Radio or whatever platform you're using and write a review for the show. We would very much appreciate that. And be sure to make it official and subscribe so you do not miss any episodes. We look forward to seeing you on the next episode.